The goal of achieving DEI as outcomes, these are lofty goals, they're challenging goals, and yet leaders too often assume that there's somehow something that we can check a box, do a 90-minute training, and achieve. And it doesn't work, right? Um, doing these sorts of one-time engagements just utterly fails to capture the breadth and depth of work that goes into creating better workplaces for everyone. That's Lili Zhang, a sought-after diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, strategist, and organizational consultant who specializes in hands-on systematic change to turn positive diversity, equity, and inclusion intentions into positive DEI outcomes for workplaces. Lily's been featured in and writes for media outlets, including the New York Times, NPR, Harvard Business Review, Quartz at Work, and HR Executive. They are the co-author of the book, Gender Ambiguity in the Workplace, and of a second book called The Ethical Sellout. They are also the author of DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide, to doing the work and doing it right. I'm your host, Marie-Lane Germain, and Lily is going to talk about why DEI initiatives often don't work. And we'll also discuss what leaders can do when employees push back on DEI initiatives and when they claim that it's reverse discrimination. Welcome to the show, Lily. Thank you so much for having me here. So the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which we will be uh, calling DEI, in the workplace can't be understated. Leaders looking to create measurable progress in their organizations are often obstructed by inspirational, but often empty platitudes, overly generalized advice about DEI, and they have long lists of best practices without much context or nuance. So when these underdeveloped strategies are implemented in the workplace, they often do more harm than good, which leads some people to dismiss DEI entirely. So Lily, you recognize that flashy one-time DEI training sessions just don't work. Why don't they? It's a really good question to start off with. And to answer it, we need to first talk a little bit about what it means for something to work, what it means for DEI to work. Now, the goal of many DEI programs, initiatives, workshops is to create workplaces that have better representation that are more inclusive environments for all people to work, and that eliminate discrimination, mistreatment, inequality, and so on and so forth. These are the goals of most DEI initiatives. And by the way, they're goals that most people can agree are good things. It's great to have more diversity in workplaces. It's of course important to have working environments that feel inclusive. It's important to root out discrimination and mistreatment. Most people agree on that. 
Now, when it comes to the flashy one-time, let's say 90-minute unconscious bias training or two-hour racial sensitivity training, the sorts of trainings that maybe listeners have had to sit through once or twice, might have participated in, might have seen during a retreat or an offsite, these trainings don't necessarily create those outcomes that I just talked about. Why? Well, those are pretty aspirational outcomes. And you don't create organizational change in a day, and certainly not in 90 minutes. Meaningfully changing the representation of a company, that's something that takes time and effort. That requires changing policies, changing processes, changing incentives, changing how we recruit and hire. None of these things can be changed in a 60 to 90 minute session. Building an inclusive workplace, sure, it's easy to be passing out sheets of these are the 10 words not to say, but as anyone who's ever worked in, let's say, a toxic workplace knows, company culture is far more than just something you can create from a list of words. Company culture permeates all of our interactions. It's something that's created by managers. It's something that's enabled by, like I mentioned, policies, processes, what leaders decide to do, where they take stands. And so the gist of it is that the goal of achieving DEI as outcomes, these are lofty goals, they're challenging goals, and yet, Leaders too often assume that there's somehow something that we can check a box, do a 90-minute training, and achieve. And it doesn't work, right? Doing these sorts of one-time engagements just utterly fails to capture the breadth and depth of work that goes into creating better workplaces for everyone. So we'll talk later on on how we can fix that. You know, what would be a good alternative? But I want to first mention that you've been named a Forbes DNI trailblazer and a LinkedIn top voice in racial equity. How does one become a top voice in racial equity? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a it's a reasonable question. I'm not sure, honestly. I uh, I post regularly on LinkedIn. I do my best to bring value to my audience. I make sure that I leave people with actionable takeaways and food for thought. But, you know, these sorts of distinctions and awards, I can't say that there is a five-step process to just do these five things and you'll be named a top voice in racial equity. Really, what I set out to do when I started posting on LinkedIn and engaging on social media is bringing value to folks, helping people do their work more effectively, helping people think about big, complex issues in relatively straightforward, simple ways. And I'm honored and grateful that some folks saw that to be valuable and decided to, you know, add me to these lists of top voices. But what I'm more happy about is the fact that, you know, this work that I've been doing for many years and that I've been doing long before I had a LinkedIn following and long before there were many people listening is seen as valuable and has really helped many folks tackle DEI issues in their own workplaces and feel more confident and competent in creating change. 
you work with organizations dedicated to the time and commitment needed to do DEI right. So tell us, how do you do DEI right? I mentioned early on in this conversation that the goal of DEI is to create more diverse representative workplaces, to create healthier workplace environments, and to eliminate discrimination and create places where everyone can thrive. And so doing DEI work right, uh, at the cost of sounding a little tongue-in-cheek, is doing work that succeeds in creating those outcomes. And the first step is recognizing that everything we do has to be centered on outcomes, not intentions. So if I'm trying to create a more representative workplace, step number one is finding ways to measure the representation of my workplace, to set clear goals around that, and to hold leaders accountable for the achievement of those goals. Honestly, that's how effective businesses get anything done. Measure what matters, right? This is something that most people have heard before, and DEI is no different. So to do this work right, you need to know where you're working toward, you need to set clear goals, and then you need to be drawing on the latest research on best practice, and so on and so forth, to create experiments, to create interventions, to try to act on your workforce to change it. So let's just use one example. How to increase representation of, let's say, women, Black folks, Asian folks, Latino folks, and so on and so forth in your company. That's, that's just one goal. Let's say you have that goal. So step number one, measure your current demographic representation. See what you have. It's probably not incredible. Then two, set goals. Maybe you want to achieve representational parity. Maybe you want your company to reflect the society that you operate in. That's a solid goal. Well, then you start experimenting. You say, well, maybe let's look at our hiring process. Maybe we're actually losing a lot of women, or maybe we're losing a lot of Black candidates or a lot of Asian candidates in the first two steps of our recruitment process. And because we're losing these candidates, our talent pools further on in the hiring process are not representative. That's a problem. So to fix that, maybe you create better relationships with, let's say, historically Black colleges and universities. Let's say you train your hiring managers to challenge their biases when they are hiring interviewees. Let's say you implement processes to use hiring panels, for example, or scoring rubrics, both processes which are shown to interrupt bias. Who knows, right? These are all just a, a smattering of the many interventions that exist in the space to challenge bias and to make processes more equitable and inclusive. So you try them, how you, you collect data, and you see if they work. And if they do, to what extent? What have you fixed? What remains to be fixed? Rinse and repeat. Taking this sort of you know scientific approach to this work Regardless of people's good intentions, regardless of what people say, it's simply a matter of you set a goal and you work to achieve it. You hold everyone accountable. You celebrate your successes. You recalibrate on your failures. That's how to do the work right in the long term. Now, there are some employees who push back on DEI initiatives. So what can leaders do when those employees push back? And What's your take on what is called reverse discrimination? 
Yeah, it's an interesting topic. Folks may not know that the term reverse discrimination started popping up around the 1980s in the U.S. under the Reagan administration as a means to challenge racial equity initiatives as a backlash to the civil rights movement and affirmative action. But when you get to the heart of claims of reverse discrimination, it's essentially coming from majority groups, typically, who feel like they're being left out of DEI initiatives. Now, there's a lot to be said about DEI initiatives rectifying historical inequalities, about DEI initiatives existing to end discrimination. But if you're someone that may not be aware of discrimination, if you're someone who hasn't thought about it before or doesn't believe it exists, of course, any effort to correct something like this by, let's say, allocating more resources to marginalized groups or let's say trying to support marginalized employees is going to be seen as a zero-sum game, as taking something away from you. And so it makes a lot of sense that people feeling this sense of threat, people feeling this sense of scarcity would feel like they are being discriminated against and, and hence this idea of reverse discrimination. Now, I'll just go out and say that research time and time and time and time again shows that reverse discrimination doesn't exist in a quantifiable sense. However, that doesn't change the fact that people who feel left out will always feel this way if they don't understand what DEI is trying to do. So from a very pragmatic standpoint, it's not necessarily useful for us to sit here and say, well, of course, reverse discrimination doesn't exist. Let's move on. So let's actually tackle this challenge. And I actually see this challenge somewhat often when I work with companies in the US. I see folks say, well, we need to do something for everyone. You can't just be favoring certain groups. This is reverse discrimination. And the way I tackle this challenge is I make sure that people understand the same shared assumptions before we go into a DEI effort. Now, my personal approach to doing DEI, I love data. This might have come through already in our conversation. I love data. I love accountability. And so when we start on any DEI-related initiative, I ground it in data. I start by asking the question, what's actually happening in this organization? To what extent are things actually equitable or fair? To what extent is there actually a meritocracy? To what extent does everyone feel included? And I'm truly agnostic about the results. It's quite possible, for example, to run these engagement surveys, to survey the workforce, to run focus groups, and to have all of this say, at the end of the day, that everything is equal and there are no problems. I'm certainly open to that finding. And more often than not, these kinds of assessments reveal inequities. For example, they might reveal that middle managers are working twice as long hours as individual contributors. That's just a fact at that point. It might report, for example, that white employees feel a very high sense of belonging within the company, but that Black employees or Indigenous employees feel an extremely low sense of belonging. We rely on this data. This data is super powerful. And when we share it with the workforce, we can say, look, regardless of whether 
you think this work is good or is bad, we have some realities about our organization that we're going to tackle. We have some problems that we're going to solve. And with the shared understanding of reality, the shared understanding of what companies are facing, then we can start to problem solve, right? Because if we all agree that there's a belonging gap, let's say, between white employees and Black and Indigenous employees, then it's totally fine to disagree on solutions. It's great, in fact, if someone says, well, I think we should solve it in this way or that way or this way. But it's not okay for someone to say, well, I just completely don't believe you. I think that's false. I think that's fake. So starting on this shared reality allows us to get past this roadblock of reverse discrimination by setting these shared expectations and aligning on our assumptions before we start doing the hard work. So you have a comprehensive set of solutions to that hold organizations and their leaders accountable. And you lay out the path for anyone with any background to become a more effective DEI practitioner and ally. So how does that work exactly? Well, we've kind of been talking about it a little bit in that, you know, this entire approach that I've been laying out in the last few minutes of our conversation is something that anyone can do. This idea of holding yourself accountable for your own impact to understanding the actual problems you're solving, to being tactical and strategic with your solutions. Now, I'm not going to go out there and say, these are my 10 favorite solutions, deploy them in every context, and you'll solve diversity forever. Of course, that's catchy, right? Of course, that's easy to market. The reality of this work is every organization is different. Every community is different. Solving these kinds of challenges requires that we be thoughtful, that we be pragmatic, that we be tactical, and that we just understand the problems we're trying to solve so that we can work together to fix them. And thankfully, that's something that anyone can do. That's something that anyone can align on. That's something that folks can come together on to solve. And when we start seeing DEI not as this lofty black and white set of moral good versus moral bad, which sometimes it can seem like, especially on social media, right? It's like, well, you're either with us or against us. You either care about doing DEI or you're a terrible person. Instead of that framing, we can move to a more pragmatic standpoint of saying, these are the problems that we're facing. These are the many solutions that activists, advocates, and experts, researchers, scientists have developed over the decades to solve them. Let's try to solve these challenges in our own company using our own skills, our own expertise, and see how we do. Let's see where we get. That sort of curiosity is not something you require, you know, uh, uh, 10 certifications to do. That's something anyone can do. That's something any ally, any advocate, any practitioner willing to take this work seriously can achieve. Do you see any progress? Of course. Of course I see progress. Just comparing in the last five to 10 years, the number of companies that have been talking about DEI has skyrocketed. Now, I know for a fact that the number of companies talking about DEI does not translate directly to companies actually achieving it. But what I'm more heartened by is that stakeholders are increasingly holding their companies accountable 
for follow-up. That's real progress. I'm seeing companies do the same approaches that might have worked in the 80s and 90s to say, well, we put a Black woman on our brochure or we sponsored a pride parade to support the you know gay employees in our company. And now employees are saying, but what's pay transparency like? What's the promotion rate like? What's the representation on your board of directors like? And it's forcing these really important conversations about accountability and not just conversations about it, mind you, but real action on it. And I'm seeing this happen across multiple sectors. It's not linear. It's certainly rocky. And there have been numerous controversies and scandals in the last few years, especially since the murder of George Floyd in 2020. But I can confidently say that there is progress happening right now, and it's progress driven by stakeholders. It's being driven by employees, by customers, even by institutional investors, pushing companies to put their money where their mouth is and to make real progress. You're right. And do you think it's generational in a way? Tell me more about that question. So do you think that the progress is linked to a younger employee workforce or a younger workforce? I think to some extent, um, younger employees are definitely driving these conversations. And from what we know about generational research, which I'll share with a grain of salt, because I think generational differences are overplayed, let's say, we do know that millennials and Gen Z have different expectations of workplaces than older generations. We know, for example, that millennials and Gen Z expect that workplaces are an extension of their own values. They see workplaces as places that directly reflect on them. And so rather than just as a means to earn a paycheck, workplaces have become these entities that if they say they do good, they have to do good or, or else they lose the trust of these groups. That expectation is, in my experience, generational. I do think that older generations may may have a more distanced perspective on workplaces, saying essentially, well, work is work and personal beliefs are personal beliefs. I think younger generations would disagree. They say, you know, my personal beliefs extend to who I work for. Mm-hmm. And if my work or if my employer is a place that you know wants to have my labor, then it better earn it by taking action and by being a good citizen, given all of the many, let's say, inequalities and injustices happening in the world. Right. And it's just good business sense, too. <laughs> well, that's a whole different conversation. Right. But yes, yes. Thank you, Lily, for your insights on DEI initiatives and on ways to make them work in organizations. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really hope this conversation spurns folks to take action and be more effective in the work that they do every day. Support for this show comes from Western Carolina University, a campus of the University of North Carolina system with the technical assistance of Kelly Minnis.